I feel like we should have a uh, an Easter version of Merry Christmas. You know, he is risen, he's risen indeed, but he is born. He, he is, is born, born indeed. indeed. <laughs> hey, well, Merry Christmas. We're so glad you have been able to join us tonight for Christmas Eve, and we'll be gathering again tomorrow morning at 1015 uh, on the Lord's Day for worship. Uh, before we begin officially, just a reminder, we've been mentioning to you uh, Ian and Brianna Evans and their little baby Will. William, he's still in the NICU. Um, he is making progress, but it is slow. And so Heather and a few of the other women are just have put in the back an area for you to, if you would like to, fill out a card for them, just a note of encouragement uh, to serve them while they, they're able to go home. She is doing well, but they are spending a lot of time in the hospital with Will and holding him. And so uh, just they're going to send some notes of encouragement, and it could be to, to Ian or to Brianna or to both of them. And we're going to send along some just other helps, some snacks, some things to just make their time there a little bit easier and, uh, and pray that they will be home soon enough with him. So uh, let's stand together, and we will open in prayer and reading. Lord, we thank you for the evening. We thank you for the joy, the privilege, the opportunity to gather and worship as a body of Christ and as this local body with Hope Bible Church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, whom we've been called together uh, to live in uh, community and in fellowship with one another, called to bear with one another and to walk along with one another um, on this Christian path, this journey. We are thankful for this Christmas season and for all that the incarnation means to us that God, very God, became man, very man. And in the manger scene, we have the incarnation of the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and came to live in our place and came to die a substitutionary death for us. And so tonight, we turn our, our eyes and our attention on these matters. We will look to the scriptures from both the Old Testament and the New Testament and hear what you have said to us, Lord, concerning these things. We do pray that you would be honored and glorified in the words read and in the songs that are sung and that you would be uh, just lifted up above and in front of all men, that they would see Jesus Christ as the only one to whom they can turn and receive salvation, forgiveness of sins, as the only one who can cleanse them from their sin and who has taken the wrath of God upon himself. So we celebrate this Christmas season tonight, and we're thankful for all that it means to us. We pray now for this gathering in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David 
and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's turn and sing together now.
have two readings now. You're welcome to sit for just a moment if you like. Stand together and sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now from the New Testament. Now. 
Thanksgiving weekend on Saturday night, uh, late, me and one of my children, uh, who does not like to be identified often, but his name rhymes with Marchie, uh, we drove home from North Carolina, and he had to read Jane Eyre. And so I said, let's put in Jane Eyre on the uh, Audible. And we started listening to Jane Eyre. And we got 12 chapters in on that trip. And I just finished it on Monday, and I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop listening. Uh, I, I'm sure I was supposed to read that at some point in my high school career, but I don't remember anything about it. Uh, but seriously, there were, there were moments where over the last four weeks, I was like, Erica, I just, I just need to get away and listen to Jane Eyre for a while. Um, I liked it that much. Uh, clearly, it's a classic for a reason. It's a good story. Uh, memorable scenes, impeccable writing, the characters are fully formed, and the plot takes all kind of turns that you don't expect it to. And so at Hope, uh, we are into old classic stories. We are into stories that have stood the test of time. And the story that we are here to talk about tonight, I am unapologetic in revisiting it over and over again. Christmas Eve every single year. If you think to yourself, oh goodness, we're going to hear that same sermon again. If you were to think to yourself even, I think I could preach that myself, good. That's the goal because I want you children, I want you to be able to tell it to your children. Moms and dads, I want you to be able to tell it to your kids today. I want this story and others to be etched into our souls. We are bound together by these stories, and I think that's becoming more and more important that we know 
those stories. And I would say that Luke's account of Jesus' birth begins the greatest story about self-giving love ever written. And every year, I like to remind you that the story of Christ's birth has been cleaned up. And it seems, it seems acceptable in ways that, that, that we sing songs like a holy infant so tender and mild, and cattle lowing, and babies awaking, and little Lord Jesus, no crying, he's making. And the scene, scene, the scene seems so serene. Why doesn't everybody just go out and deliver their babies in mangers? Why don't we spare the nurses and bring in the cows and the sheep? It seems so pleasant. Because the actual story is filled with hardship and scandal. And it begins with a young girl giving birth, probably in a cave, and laying her baby in a feed trough. The God of the universe became a very real, live baby boy born in the midst of poverty and shame. So we already read this passage earlier. It's Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. And I just want to make a few observations about it. I want to point a few things out to you tonight, and we'll actually abbreviate it a little bit this evening because I'm going to pick up and we'll go in depth on the second part tomorrow morning. But I just want to point out to you how God controls the hearts of kings. In verses 1 through 3, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And I just want to make sure you see that Luke points out that this was a historical point in time. There were real kings, real live kings reigning. Caesar Augustus was in his palace in Rome as Jesus, the king of kings, was born in a cave in Bethlehem. And I'll give you two reasons why this is important. First of all, because like I said, Luke is, is, is careful to, to locate this story in real historical things with real historical people. We can be confident that this story is grounded in facts. It is true. It is true because it's happened, and it is true because God teaches us truth through it. And we can also be confident that God directs and overrules the hearts of kings. Even today, there are men and women in this world who think they are in control of things and people and countries and nations, and they are not. God is in control. We saw a couple of weeks ago King, uh, Queen Athaliah and how God worked underneath her, even as she thought she was on the, key, the, the throne in Judah. There was a little boy who was actually the king who was living in the couch closet in the temple. Secondly, let's look at the birth of the king of kings. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. How in the world did Jesus, the King of Kings, come to be born in Bethlehem? And this is, this is how so often we think of it. Joseph comes home one day and he gets a, a letter in the mail that says, you've, you've got to be in Bethlehem to register. And it says, you have to be at the census office in Bethlehem on or before December 25th and bring Mary. And he thinks to himself, oh no, that's Mary's due date. And it's December 18th and it takes a week to walk there. Oh well, Caesar said so. 
We have to go. And so he loads up Mary on a donkey, and they come into a town a week later, desperate to try to find a place for her to deliver that baby. I would submit to you that Joseph probably had plenty of time to get to Bethlehem. This census would have taken place over months or perhaps even longer. Each man was supposed to go to his hometown, and for most people, their hometown was where they lived. But for Joseph, who was living and working up in Nazareth, his hometown was down in Bethlehem. Perhaps he went back to find work, to find people who would care for them. Verse 6 says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Clearly, they had already been there in Bethlehem prior to her going into labor. Here's the likely scenario. Things in Nazareth weren't good. Everyone in Nazareth thought Mary was pregnant before she was married. This would have been a scandal. And so Mary and Joseph are living in shame that they don't deserve. So Joseph, being from Bethlehem, goes back there. He knows he has to go anyway to register for a census. He has family there. And it seems as though they had traveled to Bethlehem at least some time before the birth of the baby to be there for a little while. Here's another picture you may have had in your mind. Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem late at night. The streets are filled with people bustling and rushing to register. And as he makes his way down the street, inn after inn after inn has no vacancy. And as they come to the last inn, there's a kindly innkeeper who takes pity on them. He doesn't have a room, but he has a stable in the back, and he says, I'll let you stay there. First of all, Bethlehem was a tiny little town. People were not piling into town on December 24th to go to the census office. Everyone was to go to their own town. Joseph and Mary had quietly arrived in Bethlehem, and they had begun looking for a place to stay. There was no Motel 6 or Red Roof Inn. Hotels, as we think of them, did not exist in that day. The word inn is an unfortunate translation. The word is cataluma, and it means upper room. The word uh, is the same word that is used when Jesus meets in the upper room with his disciples at the end of his life. Houses in that day weren't built with roofs like we have today. Most of them were flat, and you could go upstairs, and on the roof would be some kind of structure. Poorer homes might just have a little tent up there, but richer homes might actually have a room there that would be a guest room, a place for someone to stay. These were places of honor for hospitality, and they were places where relatives could come in, in a time of need. And they might even be used as a place for a banquet, like Jesus was using it during the Last Supper. Joseph probably came to Bethlehem hoping to stay in one of those upper rooms, perhaps from family that he had there in town. Why they were not able to stay in that guest room, we don't know. But the phrase there says, there was not a place for them in the Cataluma. Simply put, there was no guest room available to them. And it wasn't because Bethlehem was filled up with people. Remember, the text says, while they were there, they were already living in that stable prior to Jesus' birth. Perhaps some of the shame of the unwed pregnancy had followed them to Bethlehem. And maybe someone just had enough compassion to say, I can't let you stay up there. 
because of honor, but I can let you stay outside in my stable. Brothers and sisters, the humanity of Jesus' birth goes far beyond just him becoming a baby. That would be plenty humbling for the God of the universe. But he became a baby under the humblest circumstances imaginable. Third, I'd like to point out, little Lord Jesus cried, just like any other newborn. The, the birth of the King of Kings in the whole Bible is described in one verse, Luke 2, 7. His birth was just like any other birth. He was born a normal baby. He cried. The king of kings needed his diaper changed. He didn't have a halo on his head. He knew only what a baby would know, which means he wasn't laying there in that feed trough looking up at Joseph and Mary and saying, I know exactly what you're thinking right now. If we could somehow go back in time to the night of Christ's birth, we would find a teenage couple in a cave doing the best they could with a brand new baby. There were no grandparents there to be excited with them about the birth. There were no doctors. There were no nurses. There was only Joseph to try to make Mary feel comfortable. The promise of hope throughout the scriptures is that God would come and dwell with man. We read it earlier, the famous promise that a virgin would be called Emmanuel. 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God's God with us. The whole culmination of the Bible in Revelation is that God finally comes to dwell with man. How would you expect him to come? How would you expect God to come? When he came to Moses at Mount Sinai to deliver the law, he came with lightning and with thunder and with earthquakes. That's how you would probably expect God to come. And he will come once again, we know, in the clouds, and his feet will hit the Mount of Olives, and the mountain will split in two, and he will reign. But 2,000 years ago, he came the first time, in the most humble way imaginable, as a little baby in a feed trough. And as we'll see in the morning, in the account of the shepherds in verses 8 through 20, that coming to was very glorious. It was just glorious in a way that nobody would have expected. And so like I said, normally on Christmas Eve night, I would carry on and we would look at verses 8 through 20 and we would see those shepherds, but we're going to hold that and we're going to dig a little deeper on that in the morning. So we'll stop here for tonight, but let me leave you with two simple points tonight as we go home and prepare to celebrate the Lord's birth tomorrow. First of all, I love to consider the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph. Brothers and sisters, think about this. It's almost, it always makes me a little, a little sad. There was going to be a wedding. Perhaps Mary had already sent out her invitations. Joseph had gone to prepare a place for them in his father's house. Mary was preparing herself. And when he arrived, there would be a great celebration, a wedding that would last for days. And then he would take her home. For Joseph and Mary, there was no wedding. By faith, Joseph took Mary to be his wife. By faith, Mary said, to that angel, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to your word. At the beginning of Luke 2, Mary is pregnant and living in a cave in Bethlehem rather than setting up her new home in Nazareth. 
The whispers, by the way, will never go away. We saw this in John 8 last year. Two, in the last two years, still in Jesus' life, the Pharisees say to Jesus, we are not the ones born of sexual immorality, implying that he is. All those years later, the rumors still persist. Joseph and Mary's life was changed by Jesus. Mary and Joseph, by the grace of God, lived out their faith in a way that few people ever will. They believed God, they obeyed him in spite of incredible shame and suffering, and I love this quote about Joseph. In believing God, Joseph probably walks away from his reputation. Those in his hometown would probably always whisper about how poor Joseph got hoodwinked by that girl, or how Joseph got himself in trouble with that girl. Joseph certainly walks away from economic security. He surrenders a household economy, a vocation probably built up over generations and handed down to him by his father. Joseph and Mary did the hard things that were required of them. And there was much about this situation that absolutely defied conventional wisdom. I'm sure there were people in Joseph's life who said to him, Joseph, don't do this. You're going to ruin your life. And yet Jesus says in Mark 8, 35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Joseph quite literally loses his life and his dreams and his aspirations for Jesus. This is the Christ that we follow. Secondly, consider the path of greatness lived by our Lord. We don't need to sanitize this story. Donkeys and kindly old innkeepers and meek and mild babies who don't cry on clean straw with cows and sheep gently lowing nearby water down what's really going on here. If we clean up Luke's account, we miss the message itself because the actual facts are marvelous. Jesus was really conceived of in Mary by the Holy Spirit. He really was born by a virgin in Bethlehem, exactly as was promised hundreds of years ago. The Son of God was born amidst scandal in a stable to a teenage girl without a mother to hold her hand in relative obscurity, witnessed by shepherds. He cried. He was cold. He needed to be fed. Again, had the Son of God entered into human humanity in, in a palace of a king and a queen, he would have been lowering himself from his dwelling in the heavens. To become a man at all meant that Jesus humbled himself beyond anything that we could ever imagine. We'll read Philippians 2, 5-8 through 8 in just a few minutes, but let me just give you a shot at it before we read it together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death upon a cross. And Jesus' birth was just the first step in a life that was entirely dedicated to humility and service. He didn't just do acts of servants, service sometimes. He lived as a servant. God became a man, and he was born in a cave. And then as if that wasn't humili humiliating enough, he died on a cross, and the glory of Christ is displayed in that humiliation. But when he comes again, his glory will be displayed in a in a different way. Think of it like this. Our Lord suffered with us in this life, but he suffered for us 
in his death. Therefore, this is the rest of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That little baby will never live in humiliation again. And he exists right now at the right hand of his father. He sits there alive, a human being, waiting until his enemies are put under his feet. And he will come again and he will be exalted. And we will all bow before that child and the man that he became. Brothers and sisters, as we sit here tonight on the edge of Christmas Day, I would encourage you, bow your knee now. Bow your knee to that God, Jesus Christ, the rightful King. Worship Him as He is, for who He is, as we have been told who He is. And understand that His way of self-giving love is the greatest power in the universe. That was God's matchless wisdom and His way of conquering sin and death. Let's read that passage together from Philippians chapter 2, and then we'll move to our candlelight. Have this mind among yourselves. Join with me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Once you've got your candles ready, you can stand and we'll sing together. of 
Christmas. We'll see you in the morning.